Hello and welcome to this edition of the Intrafish podcast, where Intrafish editors and journalists give you our views on the most compelling and controversial developments in seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, editorial director of Intrafish Media. I'm joined here with John Fiorillo, executive editor. Hello, John. Hello. And Kim Tran, reporter out on the East Coast. How are you doing, Kim? All right, so we've dubbed this our tuna edition, and uh, we think we can pretty much fill up our time just talking about it, because probably one of the biggest and most, uh, I would say, ground-shaking bits of seafood news in maybe years landed. Last week, the Department of Justice was able to get a guilty plea out of Bumblebee for price-fixing canned tuna. And because of that, they will be paying a $25 million fee. And it's probably just one of the most recent shoes it's going to drop. There's going to be a lot more here. So um, lots to discuss. Um, Kim, maybe you can just kick us off really quickly and give us a brief history of the court cases, because it's cases plural, facing the tuna giants. So pretty much back in 2015, um, the first retailer came out, I believe it was Olean Groceries, who filed a lawsuit alleging that the three big tuna companies, Bumblebee, Starkiss, and Chicken of Sea, um, have been colluding, conspiring to raise prices. And over the months after the first lawsuit was filed, dozens and dozens more came out, um, whether they were filed by consumers, or indirect purchasers or by retailers, including big names like Walmart, Wegmans, Kroger, and Albertson, so on. Um, and they pretty much all uh, say that for many years, starting as early as 2004, these companies have been conspiring together to raise prices. Uh, earlier this year, two Bumblebee uh, executives pled guilty um, in a DOJ investigation after Bumblebee pled guilty, a bunch of amended uh, lawsuit complaints came out. Okay. All right. So then now uh, the, the latest Walmart filing gets into a lot more detail. Um, and we're going to talk in a bit about the additional detail that, that we've uncovered. But John, maybe you can just start us off. What was new about the Walmart document and why was it so explosive? Well, uh, a lot of the newness had to deal with names, places, meetings, specifics of how this uh, alleged price fixing and collusion took place over, you know, the, the many years since 2004. Um, it stood on a couple pillars. One was the reduction in the can size and how that was orchestrated. Um, it also talked quite a bit about uh, just prices themselves, how they would get together and share pricing information to adjust it to their benefits. Um, so it, it just carried a lot more detail with it. Yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> again, like I said, we, we were able, Kim, I should say, was able to obtain uh, some additional documents that were submitted to the Department of Justice. Um, essentially, um, I wouldn't know exactly the right way to put this, but essentially it's from people that were is snitching the right word. No, not in this case. Ratting. No. Whistleblowing is how. Whistleblowing is a nice way of saying nuanced. it. You're right. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, but anyway, so it was, it was information that was given by whistleblowers 
um, about these practices. And, you know, I, I think going into it, in fact, uh, I wrote a column, uh, I think it was a couple years ago, saying that I thought it was highly, I was highly skeptical that any of the plaintiffs would be able to prove collusion. And I was You're very, wrong on that one, kid. very wrong. That's not the first or last time I'll be wrong in a column. True. I am sure. Um, but anyway, I think, you know, at the time and, and going into it, it seemed to me that maybe there was a lack of understanding about how how tight and how difficult the, the U.S. tuna market was, just the low margins and the difficulty of finding new products and all that. So I think there was a, a certain level of sympathy. But, you know, I have to say last week, looking at the documents, especially the documents submitted to the DOJ that were redacted in the Walmart documents, um, I, I now am of a different opinion about how extensive this is and how very, very orchestrated it was. Now, these are all allegations, so we're not going to litigate it here. But these were people uh, that took plea deals saying, well, this is what I witnessed. This is what I think happened. This is These are the emails I saw. And I think when, when the DOJ, when those documents mention emails, faxes, things like that, you know, that's starting to to reach this level, this burden of proof level that tells me that there are some smoking guns in there. But I, I was, I was shocked. I don't know how you two felt about it, but I don't know, John, were you surprised by this at all? Uh, yeah, I guess I was surprised mostly. I wasn't surprised when the Bumblebee execs, um, pled guilty, I think one in December, one more recently, but when Bumblebee itself, uh, took the hit and basically for all intents and purposes admitted that they were committing fraud. Um, that was fairly surprising. And I think that takes this thing to a whole new level. And, uh, you know, one quick note on the amended documents by Walmart and the other retailers. One thing that was added this time was a list of names, um, of co-conspirators or so to speak. There were 56 names on the list. Two of them were uh, the Bumblebee guys who have been already pled guilty. The other names were, you know, all executives at all of those companies and even uh, John Connolly and Susan um, Jackson from uh, ISSF, John Connolly from NFI. Uh, so these are trade organizations. So although none of them are defendants, and none of them have been charged other than those other two. That's a lot of people. And I don't know where it goes from here, if they're going to talk to all those people. But if so, I, I got to think more will emerge. Yeah. And in fact, I think they pretty much, I mean, Kim, when, when the DOJ came out with its announcement about Bumblebee's fine, they did say that there was more to come, right? Yeah. So Bumblebee said that. Uh, they will still continue to cooperate with the antitrust division. Um, the DOJ investigation is still ongoing. So yeah, when the DOJ made the announcements, they said that Bumblebee is the third charge to be filed, and it's the first one filed against a corporate defendant. Since the, inv the investigation is still ongoing, them saying that this is the first to be filed makes me feel like there's going to be more with all the details that were uncovering in these amended complaints. It definitely seems like there's still more to 
more individuals that will be charged at the other companies um, as well as their parent companies possibly. When you reached out to some of the uh, plaintiff attorneys in the um, in in the civil cases, they were pretty gleeful about what this meant, right? Yeah, they pretty much what we are calling earlier that you mentioned. I do agree that at that point in time, I don't know if they had too much um, to stand on all of these lawsuits. Um, they were talking about supply and demand and just the trend of how this canned tuna industry has been for the last couple of years. Um, but now with these charges, especially the details that are coming out of the DOJ investigation, they have a much stronger case now, and they're very excited about that. And actually more retailers have joined in and filed lawsuits since the, since Bumblebee pled guilty. And and, and this is going to hurt, too. Um, I, I talked to one expert uh, about kind of the first, you know, the, the DOJ fine and, and what Bumblebee and, you know, theoretically, I guess, some of the others, depending on what the DOJ uncovers. But for sure, what Bumblebee might face now that the DOJ uh, got a plea from them. And she said, well, certainly in the civil cases, uh, they're going to be extremely happy about what this does for, for their uh, for their cases, because the DOJ runs a you know a very thorough investigation, um, and then the other thing she said was you know twenty five million dollars. Uh, while that's a fine aimed to be a deterrent to future collusive practices, where companies really really get hurt is in uh, in the civil cases, and that can be upwards of treble damages. I think is is how they refer to that, but meaning that these companies could be brought to um, to the brink. I mean, I, I don't know to what extent, uh, what that would mean. You know, we don't know enough about their finances to know what they can take in terms of a hit. But if indeed these attorneys do find them guilty of this, that it's going to be a tough, tough blow. And I, it'll, it's going to be interesting to see if that does come to that, um, how the companies weather that. Because these are three of the most iconic brands in the U.S. It's kind of hard to overstate that. I think, um, you know, I, I think for for uh, those of our readers and listeners that are in other countries, you know, I'm sure that their canned fish brands are recognizable. But I think in the U.S. it is quite different in the way that those brands have evolved over time in all of our psyches. Um, I mean, these are kind of up there with the craft, with the you know, all the brands that you think about uh, when you walk into a grocery store, those are three that really jump out. So. I mean, the, when it comes to seafood brands in the, in the U.S., at least, you know, there aren't a lot of strong ones. But these three are indisputable, the strongest of them all. I mean, you grew up with knowing these brands and uh, they take up a lot of. Uh, shelf space in every grocery store. So, um, you know, indirectly, it's almost a statement about the entire seafood industry, if you look at it that way, because our strongest brands are basically colluding and cheating customers is the message that's coming from this. Yeah. I mean, I think the big question, one of the, one of the many big questions is, so as part of the DOJ's uh, Bumblebee's plea with the DOJ, 
they were given the $25 million fine. And then there was some language that's still a little bit unclear. We haven't gotten anyone to fully explain this, but the way that it reads and seems is that the DOJ will levy a higher fine if Bumblebee attempts to, uh, if Bumblebee's uh, parent, Lion Capital, uh, UK private, uh, private equity fund, if Lion Capital attempts to sell it, um, and, and that was unclear to me, and I don't know how enforceable that is because, you know, Lion does need to sell it. It's a private equity company. You, you're always up for sale if you're owned by a private equity company. So there's some big question marks about then what happens to uh, to Bumblebee with Chicken of the Sea and Starkiss is different. They're owned by huge conglomerates, Asian conglomerates that can probably weather this, but Bumblebee's in a bit of a different spot. So... Um, I think the entire, uh, the entire tuna sector is in a, in a bit of a, a bit of a challenge in terms of what they're going to do if one of these companies fails or whatever the outcome is, I, the entire industry has to completely reframe itself and reframe its way of competing. Um, and I don't know if it comes out on the other side better or not. I don't know. It's really hard to know how this is going to end. I mean, a financial hit that they can't absorb could drive them into bankruptcy, one of them, let's say. And then what happens? Can the others indirectly acquire <laughs> acquire them vis-a-vis -vis, like their equipment and uh, brands and stuff like that? And is that is that really the outcome we wanted? I, I don't know. I, I don't know how this is going to I mean, structurally, the industry is going to have to change dramatically because, you know, in these documents, um, there there are some practices that are, are just kind of baffling. And I, I want to just mention a couple of those because um, it, it's it's just these aren't at least at least in what's been um, what's been submitted to the DOJ. If indeed it is true, these aren't casual oops, I made a mistake type collusive, collusive activity. Yeah. I mean, the trail here is is pretty shocking. One example was uh, one executive went through the, uh, went to the trouble um, of actually emailing another person uh, involved from his wife's account and uh, allegedly adding a subject line saying, you know, uh, see you, see you soon, you know, see you at home. When are you coming home? Something to that effect. I mean, okay, that's not a smoking gun. And again, we're we're not here to litigate. This all is going to be uh, the the courts are all going to be making decisions about this. But when you see stuff like that, um, that tells me right away, okay, they knew what they were doing, absolutely. And when you see these kinds of practices, you get the sense too that it's not something you just kind of come up with one day. And I think that's the most troubling thing is it makes me feel like it makes me question how much of this could be endemic in the tuna industry. And I, I don't know. You, you've seen the same documents, um, the two of you. So I don't know if, if you walked away with that same feeling. I think uh, some of the yeah, I agree. Some of the practices that they that some of the things that they did just doesn't sit right um, circulating around. Uh, emails and faxes and meeting in the back room of restaurants to have um, secret meetings and making sure to tell each other this is, you know, delete after reading or 
actually emailing each other that this is confidential. And, and on top of that, they, they also came together and decided on completely opposite message to tell their consumers and opposite of what they were actually doing. And they, you know, it's just too obvious that it seemed like they definitely knew what they were doing. Yeah, you know, and there's another part. I agree with all that, Kim. It was, it's really fascinating to read this stuff. But there's another part of it that I took off on in a column uh, today, and that was the National Fisheries Institute. Um, there's a portion in the legal documents that alleges that NFI's uh, Tuna Council, which is inclusive of these three members, um, facilitated, if you will, um, gave the opportunity for this collusive behavior to happen. Um, and, you know, you can debate that. Uh, John Connolly certainly explains fairly well, I think, that there are safeguards in place, uh, best practices that NFI uses at these meetings to, um, you know, thwart any any chatter that may go in that direction but at the end of the day I, I still am left with the question of do should they be doing their councils they have a shrimp council a salmon council tuna and uh another one i can't think of it at the moment but crab. crab yeah and you know the councils do a lot of good they help industry players get together on important issues and and take initiatives that are good for sustainability and stuff that there's no, you know, we're not arguing that necessarily, but isn't it better maybe just to get out of the council business? Yeah, I'm going to push back on you on that because I think this is, this is a unique case. in the fact that you had those three members, number one is the, as the sole members of that council, at least for a portion of time, I don't know, maybe even the whole time. But I think that the other councils as well, they re represent such a broad diversity of companies and product types um, that it's much harder, I think, to to number one to to have to even find a way to collude. Um, but I also feel like you know, again, going back to before we, before we get too worried about what it's going to mean for for NFI or for conferences or, or uh, trade shows or things like that, um, you know, I go back to these documents and I go back to what these uh, what these people were doing and. It, it gives me comfort that um, this this is something I think that is much more industry specific. Certainly, there's there's fraud out there, of course. Um, the industry knows it's a problem, but um, but I think in terms of of the councils, you know, this all does seem unique. And I I, I might have made the same argument a couple of weeks ago, but and, and I don't you, may know. Be, you may be right, you know, but the optics on it are not good no. and uh you got to keep in mind too that the nfi operates the quote unquote better seafood board which is there to police uh economic fraud within the industry uh and as far as i've been told bumblebee is not being kicked out of the nfi despite despite pleading guilty to economic fraud so yeah i have a hard time seeing how that's going to last though only within the next couple of weeks or maybe, something you know maybe but um but yeah your point's a good think. one i mean no, in no. this particular case 
they're dealing in a very focused one product area. I mean, shelf stable can pouch tuna. I mean, it, it is a tightly focused area. So collusion in that is a lot more likely maybe than salmon, which has, you know, a million different kinds and cuts and, yeah, and I, I have to wonder, too, with tuna, I mean, it, it's there are very, very specific industry factors that have made it a challenge to innovate in the sector, for sure. Um, but one expert we talked to said that it's not uncommon, you know, over the past, whatever, the past three, four decades, the, the U.S. has been a lot more favorable towards mergers, acquisitions, industry consolidation. And one expert said, you know, this is this is kind of what you end up getting at a certain stage. You end up with a very small group of companies. And while all along the way, as these industries were consolidating, people were saying, oh, no, no, this is going to be great. Uh, telling their shareholders this, telling, uh, you know, um, telling DOJ or other oversight authorities, it's going to be great. It's going to be more efficient. It'll give our you know more jobs. It's going to be better for our shareholders. But there was never, you know, there's never any follow up. There's no like, there's nobody, I guess, besides journalists that sort of follow up and say, hey, you know what? Remember how you said you were going to get all these efficiencies and all this innovation was going to happen? We never saw that happen. And so that's kind of where you end up as, as, a, as an industry when you have these kinds of practices is you end up with a product that really isn't going anywhere tuna consumption is is flat um flat and declining so um you know whether or not that's a result of some of these practices and whether or not there would have been more innovation if there was uh if there was indeed um fully fair competition i well, don't know well and uh i i would argue maybe that the tuna folks think they have been doing a lot of innovation the pouches and their flavored pouches, and they have all these non-can versions of their product. But I think you're right. I don't think consumers see that as a massive innovation, and I don't think there's a lot of room to innovate in the canned tuna world. I honestly don't. I, I think they may have done all they could possibly do. The, the fact of the matter is their customers tend to uh, be on the older side of the demographic and they're going away and it's all about getting that new customer. And if you go by the, if you go by the uh, consumption figures, they're not doing a good job of that. So that, that whole sector is kind of, you know, reeling. And, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, n I never fully buy that there's not ways to innovate or do different things. You know, I, I see what you're saying. It's it's again, there's some endemic factors to how it's produced that, you know, are going to limit how you can deliver it to customers. Um, but but, you know, the, the fact is, if you go into a store, uh, you know, just as a normal shopper, when I go in and, and, and doing my shopping and I go to the tuna section, I mean, I can't even imagine how consumers make the choices that they make. And sometimes I'll just watch, which is creepy, but sometimes I'll just watch <laughs> somebody, you know, making their choice on, on canned tuna. And I mean, how do you make a choice? We know these companies. And so I guess, you know, maybe in knowing the companies, we have our own little biases or whatever, our own favorite brand that we've been 
eating since we were a kid or something. But if you're a consumer, you're looking at all these cans of tuna. They're all pretty much about the same price. So that's not an environment for companies to to grow. There's nothing really jumping out, standing out uh, that makes you choose one over the other. I mean, there's been a t- I don't want to say there has not been innovation. That's not fair. And I know that there's been efforts. But um, in general... It's a troubled category. And how do consumers make that choice? I feel that they make the choice by whatever one's on sale that week. Because it's see, one week Bumblebee's on sale, one week the other one's on sale. Personally, for me, I always have tuna in the cupboard. I always get it from Costco. And uh, I get a bigger can, and the prices are fairly cheap. And I always have it, but, you know... I don't really buy it in the grocery store. So, but I do notice every week somebody's on sale and I'm guessing that's how most consumers who buy it there make their decision. Okay. Let me, let me just quickly take another, uh, take a devil's advocate side, or at least just throw this out there. To what extent should we be looking at the retailers themselves as a part of the problem here? Well, uh, they are part of the problem. They, Walmart and, and the like, always want to drive costs out of the supply chain. Always. And that's, their margins are razor thin, thinner than seafood companies. And that is their secret to success. So, in effect, they drive this behavior. But, that can't be an excuse yeah. to do these things. I mean, at some point you have the price of a can of tuna probably down to as low as it can go. And if Walmart doesn't think it's low enough, then Walmart can go, you know, bring in some other thing to replace it. But there's got to be a limit to how much cost you can drive out of it. And, you know, if the threshold for collusion uh, is just a couple of the tuna guys getting together and meeting. If that's Walmart's threshold, then I think every product that gets supplied to them is is suffering from collusion because it has to be a higher standard than just a couple of the fish guys got together at dinner and talked about prices. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I the retailers aren't innocent in this. Yeah. Okay, so what's the next step then? I mean, obviously, we've got a lot of work in front of us to, to cover this because there's a lot more. But, Kim, what, what's going to happen next and what do, uh, what, what do our readers and listeners need to be aware of coming down the pike on, on this issue? Well, pretty much the DOJ investigation is obviously ongoing. Um, the court documents mentioned that uh, I believe it was... Chicken of Sea or Starkiss um, had amnesty in the DOJ case. Um, but just looking over these documents, I think more people are going to step forward and plead guilty. Um, there's a hearing coming up for these antitrust lawsuits um, where they'll set the timeline and the dates, the deadline for the tuna companies to respond um, to these amended complaints. But I also think more people will come forward, um, whether it's customers or retailers, now that there's 
such a strong case against the tuna companies, and I expect for more lawsuits to get filed against the companies. All right. Well, we'll be following it and keeping ahead of the ahead of the developments on this. So, all right. Well, let's just do a quick roundup of uh, what's coming up on the Intrafish agenda. We have a lot of things uh, coming up in the coming month and a half. A lot of stories we're working on. John, what are you uh, looking forward to? What are some things that are happening with Intrafish that uh, folks need to know about? Uh, well, I, I think you know the wild salmon season in Alaska kicking off uh, May 18th with Copper River will be uh, a big deal. You know, uh, the last season was kind of a mixed bag and a lot of the processors uh, suffered financially from that and haven't recovered necessarily. So uh, it's not a reach to say the fate of some of the uh, Seattle area uh, salmon people uh, is in the balance this year, depending on the season. So. Uh, but outside of that bigger issue, just to, you know, just the run itself and if the fish materialize, that's something, you know, we'll be paying attention to. All right. Kim, what's on your agenda? Um, well, I'm looking forward to the Intrafish Seafood Investor Forum coming up in New York City on May 23rd. Pretty excited to see. I think we're going to have a packed house for that one. Yeah, we definitely will. So it's those are always great events. Um, I'll be over there and uh, Kim will be there. So we'll be really looking forward to giving you the news and coverage on that. Uh, and then we also have a bunch of other things coming up. We have our Women in Seafood Leadership Summit here in Seattle on June 6th. If you have not visited our site and registered to be a delegate to request a seat, you can do that at intrafishevents.com forward slash women in seafood and if you know somebody at your company whether it's a seasoned executive or a new rising star which whichever it might be encourage them to go sign up and request a seat it's limited seating so we're we're trying to get as much of a representation of the industry as we can um but but do encourage people to come it's going to be a fantastic event we'll have uh editors rachel mutter and elizabeth fisher are going to be over here uh, so that's going to be excellent. And then we've got a lot of other coverage that we're working on that's fantastic. Uh, Dominic Welling in London is gearing up for a series on Brexit and the impact on the seafood industry there. And then Lola Navarro uh, is going to be heading over to Thailand to cover the Typhex, uh show, which Interfish is the uh, media sponsor for. So lots going on, lots coming up. That's it for this episode of the Interfish Podcast. You'll be hearing from us again soon. Remember that you can find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. But the absolute best way to keep up with us is to go to interfish.com, sign up for one of our many newsletters, and we'll make sure that you get the latest seafood news headlines in your inbox every day. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>